Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you from the East Career Development Section. I am David Skarupa from the University of Florida, Jacksonville. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. Jeff Salamone with us to discuss building and strengthening relationships with pre-hospital providers. Dr. Salamone is a national leader in trauma surgery and pre-hospital care. During his youth, he was so enthusiastic about pre-hospital care that he took his first EMT course prior to his 18th birthday. Throughout his formal education, he performed multiple pre-hospital roles and maintained his paramedic certification. He completed his residency in general surgery as well as his surgical critical care fellowship at Tulane University Medical Center in New Orleans. There he learned from the great Dr. Norman McSwain. He has co-authored and edited multiple editions of the Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support Textbook, also known as PHTLS, now in its eighth edition, also with Dr. McSwain. Dr. Salomon joined the faculty of the Department of Surgery at Emory, as well as the Trauma Center at Grady in 1996. A year later, he was appointed the official police surgeon for the Atlanta Police Department. He spent well over a decade of his career at Grady, and during that time, he received multiple prestigious awards from the Atlanta Police Force, the military, as well as the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians. One such award was the Norman E. McSwain Jr. PHTLS Leadership Award. He is also a past president of EAST. Most recently, he has been the Director of Trauma Services at Maricopa Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Salomon, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us today and discuss how to build and strengthen relationships with pre-hospital providers. Thank Let's you start so much for the invitation. Let's start with some basics. Can you provide us with a brief history of the EMS system and how it is structured? Um, that's, uh, there's a lot of history there to, um, to capsulize in uh, a few brief moments. But um, even as late as the late 1960s and early 1970s, EMS was not well organized in the United States. Um, through some federal funding, the first emergency medical technician hyphen ambulance curriculum uh, was created in the early 1970s, and at that time, it was only an 81-hour training course. Before then, ambulance workers were really ambulance drivers. They had minimal, uh, if any, uh, training in first aid, and uh, Red Cross first aid would probably be all that was available. But it was actually a surgeon by the name of Deke Farrington uh, out of Chicago who began to work with some other physicians uh, to train their ambulance personnel in how to provide some basics of care. And eventually that became the EMT ambulance course. Later, um, over the next couple of years, there were a number of medics returning from the Vietnam conflict who had military training. And uh, that served as kind of an impetus uh, for development of advanced life support in the uh, in the United States. Um, the original mobile intensive care, coronary care unit was patterned after a mobile 
coronary care unit that was developed by a physician by the name of Pantridge, a cardiologist in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He got the idea of bringing hospital-type care to the patient at the scene. So it really started on the medical side and then kind of translated over to the trauma side. Um, over the years, there have been a number of different levels of EMS providers that have been uh, identified. Uh, originally, it was just the EMT ambulance that became the basic EMT. Um, and then uh, the paramedic level, there are numerous different intermediate levels. And then something even below the M uh, EMT level, originally called a first responder. Now, in the last decade, there's been reorganization of uh, emergency medical care on the federal level, and they currently recognize four levels of EMS providers. The basic level, most basic level, is called an emergency uh, medical responder, uh, or EMR, and that uh, is somebody who is not expected to work on an ambulance, but for a a first responder, police, firefighter, law enforcement, um, to have some medical training to provide care before an ambulance arrives. The emergency medical technician is now the basic level, and that typically involves a couple hundred hours of training. Uh, the paramedic level is the highest level and varies from state to state, but is probably in the range of a 1,000 to 1,200 hours of training, including classroom and didactic. And then there's an advanced EMT level that's between those two. Okay. I think that helps clear up a lot of things. And actually, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, there are different titles, and sometimes I hear them used interchangeably, but they're not the same, and I'm glad you were able to clear that up for our listeners. Is Are there any differences with the flight programs versus and the crews versus those that are on the rigs? Again, much of this will vary from state to state, even uh, varying portions in the state. Uh, in some states, flight programs are not well-regulated, not regulated by um, the Office of EMS. Uh, and the configuration of crews on helicopters changes dramatically uh, between different service providers in different states. Uh, the helicopter program that I originally uh, worked with when I was doing EMS in Reno, Nevada, uh, flew a dual nurse configuration. They later went to a nurse intermediate EMT and, and I think are currently flying a nurse paramedic. There may be some programs that still do dual nurse but most of them are um, nurse paramedic, I believe, across the country, which is really, I think, kind of an ideal model because they try to go after nurses who have ICU experience uh, and are used to titrating drips, and nurses have uh, exposure to and scope of practice with ability to administer blood and a number of drugs that, the typical paramedic would not um, be trained to give. And then on the other hand, the paramedic has been trained uh, with uh, aspects of uh, extrication, uh, removing people from vehicles, uh, and then intubation skills, which many nurses 
aren't uh, allowed to do, at least in hospital settings. So, uh, again, I think the flight status changes. Uh, uh, flight paramedics, flight nurses are not officially recognized in the levels of care, the scope of practice that um, is currently defined by the EMS office of the Department of Transportation. Hmm, that's interesting. So where, how did you get so interested in this at such an, a young age? Well, it all started with a television show that I think premiered in 1972, uh, a show called Emergency. And uh, the show ran for five seasons on NBC on a Saturday night, and it followed the uh, adventures of paramedics Johnny Gage and Roy Vissoto, uh, who manned Squad 51 and uh, for five seasons uh, responded to emergency calls. And uh, paramedics were a brand new thing. And I, I still remember when in uh, 1978 Reno got its first paramedic ambulance company. And uh, I was in high school at that time and wanted to get involved. And, and it was through that that I um, was able to take my first EMT basic course. And then as you continued, you had, you were very fortunate to have been influenced by Dr. McSwain. Can you share with us how his influence on you? Sure. Um, when I was a sophomore in medical school, or I, let me take a step back before then, in, uh, in college, I had worked um, after getting my EMT certification uh, a little bit on ambulances, but I had also worked in emergency rooms, and I really thought I was going to end up in emergency medicine as a field. And I started medical school, and in my second year of medical school, I read about this novel trauma program that was just being started on a national level and got uh, a group of local emergency physicians to fund my way to Denver, Colorado, to attend one of the national rollouts. And that was one of the pilot courses for the pre-hospital trauma life support course. So the original pilots were done in 1983, and they were now rolling out to create faculty for this program. So they held uh, these national meetings in Denver, Orlando, Florida, and Baltimore, Maryland. And so when I was in Denver, I first uh, met Dr. McSwain, and he, uh, I guess, took a liking to me because I was a medical student at the time and interested in EMS and trauma care. And I remember him saying, well, why do you want to become an ER doctor? And uh, my answer was, I'm too nice of a guy to be a surgeon. Hmm. And I, uh, when I got into my clinical rotations in medical school, I guess I had never been around surgeons very much. When I got into that, the the idea, especially with trauma, of being able to actually fix a problem um, was much more exciting than I kind of saw the emergency physicians as medical firefighters. They came in and put out the fire, and then somebody else came in to rebuild the building. And as a trauma surgeon, you kind of got to do it all and actually fix the problem and watch the patient get better. So he had some influence, and then... I was looking for 
a place to do residency and looking at uh, surgeons who have a strong interest in EMS. And the two at that time uh, in the country were Kim Kimball Ball, who was at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Norm McSwain at Tulane. And both of them uh, had a number of EMS publications and were well-known on the EMS conference uh, uh, rosters. They would speak at numerous EMS conferences. And I ended up doing my surgery residency and then fellowship at Tulane. So Norman was a huge influence during that time. When I finished my fellowship in 1996, uh, Norman had asked me to uh, join the pre-hospital trauma life support program as an associate medical director. All right. He's touched a lot of people's lives. Now, um, we say that injury is a disease of time, and the pre-hospital providers are often the first to start the resuscitation. And do you think they're involved enough in the performance improvement aspects of a trauma system? And more so, how would you like to see them involved in regional trauma system development, outreach, prevention, and performance improvement? I think it may be the other way around, that trauma centers don't do a great job of getting EMS providers involved. Um, many of these uh, individuals who bring patients into their trauma center are um, uh, work for other agencies, so that raises the question of, gee, is it a HIPAA violation to include EMS providers in our monthly trauma center PI meetings. Um, it's one thing if they're hospital-based uh, air medical uh, helicopter personnel. Uh, clearly, that would be okay. But then there's also the concern of, well, do we want these people who are not part of our hospital sitting in on our QI meetings where, where our dirty laundry may be aired? Uh, so I think that leads to some barriers as well. There's also, uh, there are also issues that I think that many of the folks who are uh, doing performance improvement in the, um, in the trauma center really do not have a good idea of what appropriate um, indicators would be for, for quality improvement. For many years, and one of my criticisms of the uh, college uh, previous green book was that they identified uh, that a performance uh, indicator would be uh, seen time longer than 20 minutes. And that was, you know, even in the green book from 2006, whereas pre-hospital trauma life support had been preaching a 10-minute seen time of 10 minutes or less uh, ever since it was uh, rolled out in the early 1980s. So for almost a quarter of a century, the College of Surgeons was permitting twice as long of a scene time as uh, the pre-hospital trauma life support course. And so maybe 20 minutes is fine for non-life-threatening problems, but if they're life-threatening problems, we really felt that uh, EMS needed to move quickly. Uh, there are all kinds of other things that could be looked at, uh, how the airway was managed, or was the airway managed appropriately? 
Um, there are some circumstances where, you know, if you're five blocks from the hospital, maybe taking the time to intubate somebody is not the right thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, if you're 30 minutes from the hospital, securing that airway in a critical trauma patient uh, may, in fact, be the best thing for the patient. So trying to identify quality indicators nowadays, if a patient comes in with external hemorrhage from an extremity that's uh, not controlled with a tourniquet, that would be an appropriate thing to feed back to the EMS service. So I think there are opportunities um, for performance improvement to better mesh with uh, pre-hospital care. And how have you in – do you have any concrete examples of how you have successfully done this in developing and maintaining these relationships as in the roles that you've had? Um, well, there there are so many different ways to work on building these relationships. And I think one of the most important things that uh, I, I frequently see overlooked in many of the trauma bays I've had the chance to observe as soon as EMS rolls in and uh, starts dropping the, the patient off, there's this huge rush for the trauma center personnel to begin their assessment and intervention. And what they're missing out on is how the patient was at the time EMS found them, what uh, their findings were, what interventions they provided, and how the patient responded to those interventions. We all know that uh, we respond to many, many trauma patients who were really not that critical when they arrived in the trauma bay. And so I'm a strong proponent of doing a brief timeout, just like we do in the operating room before we start a case, um, a brief timeout for EMS to provide a report. If the patient is in extremis, uh, they have a compromised airway, then trying to get the life threat addressed very quickly, and then everybody stop and listen to the EMS report. Uh, and on the other hand, EMS needs to keep that sustained. But again, uh, the EMS providers are the eyes and ears of the physician at the scene, and they have key information that could be passed on uh, or could be overlooked uh, if the trauma team captain uh, and the other personnel in the room aren't paying attention to their report. So that uh, that's one place to start. If you identify um, uh, other ways of building relationships, uh, there will be times where both physicians and nurses want to play gotcha with the EMS personnel. Um, you know, why wasn't this, why wasn't an IV started on the patient? Why wasn't the patient intubated? Um, and uh, part of that may come from the fact that their attention was on other much more important things, controlling external hemorrhage, or perhaps the patient was combative. Uh, to this day, there's very little literature that shows that pre-hospital IV fluid, crystalloid, improves the outcome of a trauma patient. So just um, making an EMS provider start an IV just for ease of access in the trauma bay may not necessarily be the thing that's in the best interest of the patient uh, if they get a, a significant amount of crystalloid fluid. It's also important, I think, that if nurses or emergency physicians 
or trauma surgeons identify errors or opportunities for improvement that they do their best to try and pull the medics over to the side. Uh, medics are very often very interested in whatever feedback we can provide them. Uh, but that even goes back to understanding their scope of practice, uh, what these guys on the ambulance truly are capable of doing, um, whether they're a basic crew or an advanced crew. Um, you know, you can't criticize somebody for not intubating the patient when it's a, a BLS or intermediate level uh, fire department crew and uh, no paramedics were present. So, again, having some understanding of the structure of your e local EMS system. Okay. So, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, what is the best way to provide feedback to the EMS? And I like what you suggested about pulling them aside. Are there other things and to do, and when would a letter, for example, be helpful, both positively or negatively about the outcome of a patient that they may have sent to the trauma center? Um, well, more information on, on providing feedback. Again, a lot of what we do is going to be based upon uh, the criticality of the patient and the interventions that need to be provided. There may be things that we notice um but because of our higher priorities in trying to save the patient's life, you don't have the opportunity then. So if, um, you know, I, I encourage uh, EMS providers that if they want feedback that um, they could leave a cell phone number or an email address. Uh, and uh, there are some trauma centers where Actually, uh, EMS will fill out a card and put a patient sticker on it and their contact information. And then as, uh, the trauma surgeons or, or nursing personnel become available and find more information, they can provide some follow-up. Um, there are other opportunities. Uh, I think one of the, the more common mistakes I see EMS providers make uh, is uh, location placement for needle force and thesis uh, for suspected tension pneumothorax. So if, if time permits, being able to show the anatomy and walk, walk through and point out where the needle should have been placed instead of where it was placed, again, you know, if you can do that without calling them out, um, embarrassing them in front of the whole trauma bay, uh, that's really ideal. Uh, but again, I do want to emphasize that most most EMS providers are doing what they think is the right thing, what they've been taught is the right thing, and they may not be up to speed on current teaching, and, and so the chance to, to pull them aside and give them some feedback uh, can be very beneficial. Um, the elephant in the room, of course, in a community where there are multiple competing trauma services and multiple EMS agencies is the issue of, you know, are we going to um, irritate our pre-hospital providers and they'll take their patients to another location. Hopefully, your trauma system is designed uh, well enough that uh, those issues can be addressed. But again, if uh, I think you take the time to teach uh, and provide 
information feedback for the most um, critical of uh, of errors uh, that is important your qi program now does your qi program need to send the letter to the specific ems provider i don't really know that maybe the appropriate thing is that there's an ems liaison in the agency and your your um, pi program then communicates that concern with either the medical director or the the EMS liaison for that uh, EMS service and allows them to address it then um, and that then uh, potentially protects the trauma center a little bit from uh, concerns of EMS retaliation. Okay. Just a couple more questions uh, as we wrap up here. Uh, As a paramedic prior to becoming a trauma surgeon, was there and you kind of, I think, have touched on this. Was there anything you wish the trauma center trauma surgeons did differently? And then also part of this same question is, how has being a paramedic influenced you on how you conduct yourself as a trauma surgeon? Well, I think one of the important aspects that should be considered is that Understanding the conditions in which uh, these folks work, we um, uh, rarely uh, is there gasoline spilled in our trauma bay, hopefully never. It's a temperature-controlled trauma bay. There's not ice, water, rain uh, in the way. Uh, there aren't people shooting at you. And so the circumstances under which the EMS providers work is uh, very, very important and having some understanding of that. I would encourage all trauma surgeons, you know, a couple times a year, especially if they've never done it, uh, to spend some time with EMS providers. And that time can be spent uh, a number of different ways, uh, including um, right along uh, with EMS. And if you've never done that, it's an eye-opening experience to see the environment uh, in which they uh, obtain their patients. Um, but not just be assigned to an ambulance crew because that can be very boring sitting at a station waiting for hours for one call. Uh, to maximize things, if, if you can work it out so that you're assigned to um, a field supervisor who has the ability to roam all over the zone uh, and cherry-pick the best calls so they can actually take you to the scene to where things are actually happening, and you can see that. So that's uh, one important aspect. Um, teach, uh, provide lectures to the EMS personnel, and that can either be done through an EMT or paramedic training program at your local community college or university, uh, or at some of the trauma centers I've worked at. We've done pre-hospital trauma rounds once a month, or once every other month, where we take some cases they've brought in and then um, let them talk about what they encountered in the field and the care they provided, and then walk the patients uh, through the emergency department, what injuries were identified if they went to the operating room, uh, ICU care, and then how the patients are doing. EMS providers have very little understanding of what happens after their trauma patient leaves the trauma bay. Uh, If you can open up your hospital to allow 
EMS providers to do some observation on um, rounds in the trauma ICU, or we've had EMS providers follow the trauma surgeon around when they're on call for a period of hours, including going to the operating room. So they don't scrub into the case, but they're allowed to stand there and observe and actually see the definitive care that's provided. And I think that gives them an infinitely better understanding of how minutes can make the difference and uh, what limited things they can truly do for a patient in the field and why getting that patient packaged and en route to the trauma center in the right location uh, is uh, so important. I think there is another part to that question that uh, I've forgotten. I, I, I think you've answered it very well and actually all of these. And Dr. Salomon, this has been very insightful. You have the last word. What is one thing you would like to convey to the audience about building and strengthening relationships with our pre-hospital personnel? Well, I think many EMS providers idolize trauma surgeons. You know, we're kind of mysterious individuals to them. They usually only see us in the trauma bay. Rarely, It's not like the ER docs they see around the ER all the time. We're usually there for the sickest of the trauma patients. Uh, we're usually pretty decisive about uh, what needs to be done. And then we snatch these patients and go off to places in the hospital they don't visit very much, the ICU and uh, the operating room. And so uh, you never know what taking a couple moments and, um, and, and thanking a paramedic for the care they provided or giving them an attaboy or girl for the care that they provided, um, uh, asking them uh, a little bit about what they do and where they work and, and uh, getting to know them just a little bit better because if you're going to spend your career there, you're going to see many of these folks uh, time and time again uh, throughout your career. So um, building that relationship because – you know, they're the ones that bring the patients into us. In the same way we build a relationship with our physician colleagues at the trauma center, it's important for us to build relationships with uh, those who provide the care. And, again, it's important for us to teach them because, uh, as uh, the title of my East Presidential Lecture uh, goes back to the um, the care of the wounded is really depends upon the person who first touches that patient, the one who first provides care. If we don't have viable patients delivered to the trauma center, then it makes our difficult our job far more difficult. So thank you so much for your interest in EMS and, and uh, uh, asking me to discuss this topic. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Salomon. On behalf of the East Career Development Section, I would like to thank you for taking time to speak with us today. I'm David Skarupa, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more East Career podcasts and other valuable information. Dr. Salomon, that was great. Thank you so much. Um, you know, one quick question I have for you is, what do you think is the biggest misconception that we as trauma surgeons have about our EMS providers, and 
the converse. So in other words, what is the biggest misconception that you think EMS providers have or have about us as trauma surgeons? Well, in terms of um, just the way information is very slow to disseminate through um, medicine sometimes, it's even harder to disseminate through EMS pathways. Um, I think protocols changed. Uh, I remember when, uh, you know, it's a decade ago when we first saw the uh, the benefits of using tourniquets in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, we as the, the leadership of the pre-hospital trauma life support program sat around talking about, wow, tourniquets were um, uh, curse of the devil in many EMT textbooks. Only as a last resort do you use a tourniquet. And so uh, trying to get that information out there, and here still 15 years later, I think it's becoming much more common now that if direct pressure doesn't work or is, um, uh, if your hands need to be tied up doing other things, such as managing an airway, that slapping a tourniquet on extremity bleeding is very, very important. So we all need to to work harder at getting current information transmitted to the field, concepts of damage control resuscitation. Um, you know, EMS providers have been taught for many years, although there was no data, how important it is to start these IVs on the trauma patients. And now we're realizing that that crystalloid can dilute out the clotting factors and the concept of permissive hypotension or uh, balanced resuscitation, as it's now called in ATLS, is uh, so very important for our trauma patients. And restoring their blood pressure to normal uh, before you've uh, controlled hemorrhage uh, can possibly lead to a worse outcome in our trauma patients. So working to get these concepts out to the field providers, and then we as physician leaders need to work with their medical directors uh, and those in the, our, our local EMS system to make sure their protocols reflect uh, the care that we believe should be currently administered to patients. Well, again, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. This is you know, something that I think a lot of us feel like we can improve upon, and improving that relationship is the best thing um, for the patient. So thank you again. We really appreciate your unique perspective. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Salamone.